Hello and welcome to Have Travel, Will Travel, a podcast where twice a month we sit down and have a virtual chat with interesting academics about their work and experiences. I'm Bridget, your humble host and auditor of the Archaeology Society here at NUIG. This week I'm joined by Professor Catherine Badgley, a vertebrate paleontologist who focuses on how changes in the environment can affect species diversification. So strap in, we've got quite the show in store for you. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome. Today, I am here with Dr. Catherine Badgley, a paleontologist uh, from America, who's going to come and talk to us about some of some really interesting stuff that she's been studying. Um, so why don't we start off with, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we, we can get into your, your PowerPoint sure. that you have. Sure. Uh, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here, and I want to um, I want to just give a, um, a word of um, enthusiasm and support for your for your society because when I was a graduate student I started a a, a um, seminar series with other graduate students and it was a wonderful experience to be able to create something that was for our own purposes and so I really support what you're doing and so thanks so much again for having me I'm a paleontologist uh, who studies the history of mammals and I try to integrate this uh, study with the study of modern mammals as well. In particularly, in particular, I'm interested in the factors that regulate diver species diversity. And of course, that changes greatly over space today and also over time in the past. And so those are the main questions that I focus on. And I have a background in geology as an undergraduate and then um, actually I have a master's degree in wildlife ecology because I'm very interested in the implications for conservation. And I also then have a PhD in biology. And for those of you interested in going on in academia, in the, whether it's in archeology span or in paleontology, I strongly encourage you to have some background in both areas because they both give kind of what I would say essential and foundational information for the study of these fields. I will say that my field work has taken me to some wonderful parts of the world. I've worked in East Africa. As I was explaining earlier with Richard, I've actually worked with archaeologists in, uh, at Lake Turkana with Richard Leakey and Glenn Isaac. Uh, Glenn Isaac, unfortunately, now deceased, but he was one of the people who worked on early Stone Age assemblages associated with early hominins there. Um, most of my work, however, is with older sequences, what we call the Miocene, and which extends from about 23 to 5 million years ago. And my main field area has been in Pakistan, where I've worked with a large group of other scientists to try to unravel the factors that control changes in the diversity of mammals over time. And there's a wonderful fossil record there that is um, preserved by the sediments that are shed off the rising Himalaya mountains. And now, because we no longer are able, at least Americans are no longer able to work in Pakistan, at least not easily, I'm doing similar research, but now focused in the Mojave Desert, which is in southeastern California. It's a part of California that most people don't know much about. It's a very large desert area that has several basins with really good fossil records. And so that's what has brought me to that particular place. That is that is all really really cool. Uh, definitely talking about some much older stuff than we would cover. I think some of the oldest topics that we've covered in my in archaeology have been when we were talking about some very very early hominids, 
um, right. like uh, Lucy from Africa. Yes. Yeah, right. I think I think that's about as old as we've gotten. And then that was just like maybe a couple of classes just to kind of go over it. Uh, we usually kind of start with like Paleolithic and then move up from there. Right. So it'll definitely be interesting to hear about something so much older and so much so much different. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, do you want to go ahead and get started with your uh, PowerPoint then? Sure. I do have a short presentation just to give you an introduction to the questions that I'm working on now. I, as, um, as I think Bridget mentioned, at least in her notice to you, the topic that I'm working on right now with my students and with my colleagues is, is landscape history and how that relates to mammal diversity. And let me, I'll take a moment, a few moments to um, explain what I mean by that. So what I'm going to do is to share my screen with you and we'll go into a short PowerPoint presentation. Then we'll come back and do some more discussion. So let me try this now. All right, this will be good. <laughs> Whoops, let me get that out of here. I'm not sure what. <laughs> All right, well, I can see your screen now, so that's a good sign. Okay, great. And let me get this started now. Okay, very good. Can you see, you should see uh, what I'm calling a title slide that says landscape history and mammal diversity. And it shows a scene of the setting in which our study takes place. And this setting here is a scene from uh, the area of North America called the Basin and Range, which lies between the Rocky Mountains and the Sierra Nevada. And it's, and I'll show you a map of this area shortly. Whoops, let me, um, but it's an area that is uh, really interesting today because it's got a huge, there, there are more than 200 mountain ranges, many of them very small, in this basin and range area. And this area represents, uh, only came into existence in the last 20 million years. Now that may, that of course, seems like a long time to you, but geologically that's quite young. Yep. And it has very high mammal diversity today. And yet, and it's, a, it's an unusual set of environments. At low elevations, there, there's desert everywhere. And at high elevations, one, higher elevations, one gets forests of various kinds, and then ultimately um, snow-covered peaks, and then a, finally an alpine uh, region at the top. So there's quite a, there are many different environments here, but they're mostly in terms of elevation. So um, let me say a little bit about how landscapes are relevant to biodiversity. And what I mean by landscape is topography and climate at spatial scales of tens to thousands of kilometers. Now this spatial scale is especially relevant to mammals because this is the scale at which species ranges occur, for mammals at least. It's also the scale at which we get very strong environmental gradients. By that I mean changes in the substrate, in the elevation, in climate, and also in vegetation. And these landscapes then present barriers or corridors for dispersal of mammals, individuals, and therefore they either inhibit or they allow animal geographic ranges to expand or to contract or to remain exact static because they can't move. And these change strikingly over time. Now, the, the, these properties of the landscape form through tectonic processes. Tectonic refers to mountain building processes, climatic processes, and erosional processes. So these are these processes in Earth history which have been acting since the Earth was formed and 
they have been changing the landscape constantly over the entire history of the Earth. And typically, these processes occur on timescales of thousands to millions of years. And so we need to be thinking what aspects of mammal diversity also change on those timescales. And in fact, we know from the study of mammals that these properties of the landscape can change dramatically over the timescales of ecological and evolutionary processes that are highly relevant to mammals. So um, I hope this gives you a sense of what properties of landscape um, I'm interested in and that we're able to study. Now, um, with that in mind, let me show you a map of the terrestrial parts of the world. These are the continents. I, every, I'm sure the, the geography here looks, whoops, familiar. And um, what I'm showing you is what we call a heat map. And I say heat map simply because the warm colors represent here higher numbers of mammal species living in, this, in, the, in the per area. And we're looking at this on a, one kind of heat map scale that covers the entire world. And what you're easily able to see, well, I'm gonna see if I can bring my cursor up. Yeah, here with this little arrow. So you can easily see the most familiar spatial gradients um, that we know in biodiversity study. And that is what is called the latitudinal diversity gradient. And that means as we proceed from high latitude to low latitude, whether we're in the Northern hemisphere or the Southern hemisphere, that um, the number of species increases. So we're getting to warm, from cooler to warmer colors. But the other gradient that's very striking, um, particularly once, to, once one starts looking at mountain ranges, is that on every continent, we find that the, higher, the highest number of species occurs in areas of topographic complexity. So although it's very subtle in North America, you'll see that the warmer colors are over here in Western North America, where we have a lot of mountain ranges. And I'll show you, shortly I'll show you a map of this area that enables us to see this pattern. In South America, we have high, very high species richness in both Amazonia, but also the highest is actually right along the Eastern edge of the Andes, where my cursor is now. In Africa, the highest richness is, species richness is in the African rift system, which is right here. And then in Eurasia, the highest richness is along the Himalayas and also Southeast Asia, and in, which is um, very, very complex topographically with many small sort of twisted mountain ranges. And in Australia, which has uh, relatively low mammal diversity overall, the highest diversity is along the Eastern margin and that is where there are mountains along the entire coastline. So this pattern, although it has different magnitudes in different places, is persistent this, this, sorry, <laughs> trouble. PowerPoint is jumping around here. Yeah. This is, um, this pattern of this secondary gradient associated with complex topography is present on all the continents. And we do know, um, we do know if we look at this as a, with geological eyes, that all of these topographically complex regions that I pointed out here are either current or former tectonic plate boundaries. So that starts us thinking, how is the, the history of these topographically complex regions, how does that reflect earth history? And then why does that have such a big impact on mammal diversity? That's well, really uh, cool. Sorry, yeah. I just had to, sure. had to say, because I've never seen a map like this. Yeah. Like I've always heard that like in, in the Amazon, there's so many different species. Right. Um, and that, that's kind of like the one, you know, the one thing that you always hear about the Amazon is just how many species are there, but it, you know, never quite, 
registered that something similar you could find something similar in other places as well and it's just it's super cool to see and plus I like seeing Ireland there where it's just all blue (laughs) (laughs) well I mean many parts of North America are all blue too I mean certainly the high for Ireland partly because it's an at least now an island but also because of the high the high northern latitudes and also because and and much of the higher latitudes have low diversity partly because of they were so severely glaciated in very recent time and that has you know i know that has a big impact on ireland's archaeological record and it also does for much of north america as well so moving ahead then now looking at north america and i'm focusing in here on the area whoops the area that i study let me get my cursor back so now we're looking at a heat map of just part of north america and in particular, um, this map now is just showing the species richness of living rodents. Now, so rodents are small mammals that include things like mice, squirrels, beavers, uh, uh, what, um, voles, um, kangaroo mice, um, what, uh, muskrats, I'm trying to think of some of the, the ones that you, will, that you folks will be familiar with. And the reason we're focusing on rodents is because they are the most diverse group of mammals in the world. So to a first approximation, a mammal is a rodent, even though that's not the way we think of it. But for that reason, it's interesting to study their diversity because they, are, um, they represent quite a bit of the diversity of mammals. The other thing is because they're small and some are burrowers or some live in holes in the trees, they are very, their biology is very close, is closely tied to properties of the substrate. So they tend to be animals that reflect very strongly the, the changes across the landscape. And here in this heat map, you can see that there's a very strong gradients of rodent diversity across, sorry, across, Western, across North America, particularly in Western North America. And the highest diversity we're seeing here, if I can get my cursor without changing the slide, <laughs> is along the Rocky Mountain front where it's really, really red. And then the area that I was telling you is the basin and range is the area I'm outlining now. And you can see how it looks wrinkly, almost like the surface of a prune. And that is all the many mountain ranges, parallel mountain ranges that are um, in this area creating very complex topography. And it's, uh, it's a very interesting area for geologically, but also biologically. And so what we call this gradient is the topographic richness gradient. And what it means, as, the, as the, the text explains, is that species richness increases with topographic complexity. And of course, I'm focusing here on mammals, but we see the same pattern with birds and with vascular plants and with other groups as well. So um, what I have been doing over the last maybe, um, say, 15 years or so is to try to study the ways in which mammals come and go, species come and go, that's a process that we call diversification in landscapes that are changing rapidly, geologically rapidly. And so I have assembled a research group of geologists, biologists, and paleontologists who are studying landscapes changing over geologic time and then following how the mammals change as well. And we're trying hard to see how different processes, speciation, the formation of new species, extinction, the disappearance of species, shifting geographic ranges, and environmental filtering have changed diversity over time. 
And we have this little acronym that we call NARLI, which is North American Rodents, Landscapes, Evolution, and Ecology, just to have something catchy. <laughs> that is a catchy name. It's very yeah. gnarly. <laughs> very gnarly, right. Okay, so I just, I want to just review with you briefly the different processes we're trying to evaluate. So we're looking at ecological processes, which have to do with how many species can live together. That's what we refer to as species, what species packing um, along environmental gradients that vary with topography. So on the left here, we're seeing the desert landscape at, um, in the basin and range that is, you can see a lot of bare ground, very dry. These are Joshua trees, a kind of giant yucca that's unique to this area. And then on the, on the right, you're seeing alpine zones that have a totally different climatic regime and a totally different vegetation. And they're re really within sight of each other in the basin and range. So they're very strong environmental gradients and we find completely different species living in both, in both of these areas. We're also looking at evolutionary processes where we're trying to see how barriers, whether they're deep canyons like what's pictured here or high mountain ranges that might isolate populations and promote species formation or extinction. And then, then also we're looking at the, the geological history. And this little diagram on the lower left is showing the way the basin and range formed. It's essentially the whole area is being stretched and pulled apart by um, tectonic forces and by plates moving apart in this area. And what that has done is taken a high, what, what was once a high mountain range and stretched it and pulled it apart into many small mountain ranges and created these huge expanses of low elevation habitat. And then the, the, the view on the right is the more recent climate history that's showing uh, what the North America looked like 20,000 years ago when huge ice, uh, ice sheets covered the area. And of course, Ireland would have been strongly affected by these ice sheets as well. Uh, yeah, definitely. I think yeah. we, had, we had ice sheets covering pretty much all of Ireland. I think down to about Cl County Clare is about where the wow. ice sheet stopped. Wow. Yeah, wow. Uh, right up. Actually, it didn't cover the whole thing. No, it didn't. We still, we had like a little, little tiny kind of band down at the bottom, but I think it covered Ireland like well up until uh, the end of the Paleolithic, I think it was only in the Mesolithic yeah. that the ice sheet, ice sheet retreated enough that we see right. evidence of human habitation. And that's interesting because a very similar pattern has affected the state of Michigan, which is, mm -hmm. which may be, you know, about the size of, I don't, I don't remember the, the, the area comparison, but we, Michigan was co totally covered with ice actually. And then it, it um, retreated, you know, from roughly from north to, sorry, south to north. And so, the area where, where Ann Arbor is, where I am now, only became um, un, uh, available as land about 13 and a half thousand years ago. And so, um, you know, it's interesting to realize that these ecosystems here are very young. But yeah. getting back to um, this, our research program, we're, my, my research group is trying to analyze the causes of this, this gradient, which we can't really understand just by studying the modern world, because the modern world is just a snapshot through these processes, and these processes occur, play out over thousands and millions of years. So we're trying to investigate the diversity gradient over deep time by looking at the fossil record of mammals, and then tracking changes in diversity in relation to changes in tectonics, topography, and climate. And then we basically ask, you know, we pose questions and try to test hypotheses. 
and in particular as um, I'm focusing on the North American record of rodents over the past 30 million years. And I'll show you just <clears throat> a brief example of the kind of data that we're recovering. First of all, just to a brief aside about rodents. Here is a, um, a view of many, many kinds of North American rodents today. And so you can see, you know, little furry things uh, that, you know, some of which are, have amazing adaptations for some of my favorites, for example, these are the kangaroo mice <laughs> and kangaroo rats, which have enormous ears, the ear sort of ear, um, ear regions. So they're able to hear, you know, amazing sounds that we can't hear at night. They're also incredible hoppers and jumpers. They also have remarkable physiology so that they never need, even though they're living in a desert environment, they're able to get all of their water from, from dry seeds, if you can imagine. And oh. then other things, whoops, um, other interesting ones, you know, we have, we have this is a, a kind of ground squirrel, this is a bull, a tree squirrel, this is a pocket gopher. Um, what is this little guy? This looks like uh, one of the meadow jumping mice that lives in our area. And then a uh, big woodchuck and then... Um, then you know another kind of uh, the the deer mouse that we have here in North America, and so the, on the right now you can see all a, a map of the lower 48 states. All those little blue dots that you see are fossil assemblage fossil localities across the country, and so these are fossil localities. The Neogene refers to 23 million to 2 million years ago, roughly. So you can see we've got hundreds of fossil localities, and then below you can whoops you can see. The fossils, you can, sorry, <laughs> uh, you can see thing. a picture of the fossils themselves, some of, and then some reconstructions of what some of these fossil rodents look like. Some very strange ones that are very different from anything living today, including a horned gopher, and then a beaver that lived on the plains and created huge spiral burrows. So, you know, the neat thing about the fossil record is it always stretches your mind. There's always something there that's like nothing alive today. So you have to expand your horizons of what, what is possible. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I, always, I always love looking at some of those, you know, the reconstruction drawings of some of these, these ancient right. uh, creatures. Right. And it's just, it's fascinating to look at them and go, this looks like something we'd see in Star Wars. They're just such, yeah. <laughs> such strange. Well, and it could be that that's where Star Wars got the idea. That is very possible. <laughs> yeah. So the two two of the questions that we're, for example, trying to um, address with our, our records of landscape history and mammal diversity is does an increase in area, geographic area, pr promote an increase in species richness over time? And that I say that because, as we'll see shortly, the area of the basin and range started out small and then expanded through, and I'm going to show you a little video of what that expansion looked like. And then also how do changes in the magnitude of topographic barriers affect the, Im the, um, the immigration of new species into the basin and range? And um, that's another kind of question that we're trying to address with our fossil record. So I want to um, now um, highlight the work of some of our geological colleagues who are working at Stony Brook University on Long Island. And they have taken ancient faults and faults, you know, being huge cracks in the ground where the earth is moving um, along those faults and up, down, or sideways. And they have, by reconstructing, restoring the movement on those faults, they're able to look at the way um, Western North America has changed over 30 million years. And so what I want you to look at is, and I'm gonna try to get my cursor going without starting this little video yet, 
I want you to notice that this big white area here was a high mountain range as high as the Andes in about, and it existed for 40 to 30 million years ago in Western North America, and then started to pull apart. And it's the pulling apart of this enormous mountain range that has created the basin and range of today. So what, what I want you, as you watch this video on, happen, I want you to see that this whole area is going to expand to the west. It's also the white area is going to be pulled apart, break up, and then to some degree disappear as some of the elevations drop a little bit and these, this one huge mountain range is now split up into 200 small ones. So with that, the video is gonna go, just take um, less than a minute and the, if you look in the lower left, you'll see a counter for time. So we're yeah. going to start. So just for just for reference for some of our uh, non-American viewers, so this here, I don't know, you probably can't see my mouse, but I see California. Yes. Is the kind of it's been stretched out a little bit, but that does look like California there. Yes, we've put the state boundary uh, markers there just to give some familiar uh, orientation, but you'll see that much of California at this point is underwater. Oh, wow, there, yeah. In other words, there is no, there's almost no California at this point. And there's yeah. almost, if just west, just east of California is uh, Nevada, which is very squished. And that's, Nevada expands, it, it increases in area, but at least by twofold during this period. Oh, and wow. these uh, polygons here are areas where we have high concentrations of fossil localities. And that's the reason we've placed them. Okay. On yeah. So let me start this little video. And here we go. So now you see the counter moving. Now you see how the, um, the continent boundary is starting to shift to the, rotate to the Northwest, especially. And you'll see that, you'll see that high white area start to disappear and the mountain range start to pull apart. And it's gonna, that, that, that whole, this process of westward movement is gonna, now starts to increase quite rapidly. And now you're gonna to start to see Nevada expand California is going to start to look browner, meaning more of it is uplifted, is coming, is emerging from the ocean. And now we're getting close to the modern um, setting. And so, yeah, now we're at modern, in the modern condition. And now you see California being green and brown, which is all essentially above a sea level. And now you see that sort of bumpy look of, uh, whoops, you see this, whoops, I'm sorry. I, I just, <laughs> no, sorry, but I, I did see it, how the, the white, the white bit there had basically completely disappeared. Yeah, and that white, that huge mountain range has disappeared, and now we have all this, this uh, very bumpy uh, looking uh, part of Nevada, which are the hundreds of mountain ranges that remain as a legacy. So you can see there's been a huge change in the landscape. So our question is, what happens to mammal diversity over this time period? So here we have our answer. Um, this is now we this is actually all mammals not just rodents and we've compiled the data here from a public database that uh, has recorded fossil localities from all over North America uh, but we're just looking at the mammals that are found in what is called the basin and range and we see that from about 30 to 18 million years ago that there's low diversity some of that is because they're areas that are poorly sampled but then we see an unusual pattern at 18 million years and then the, the diversity shoots up to as high as it is today in this area remains high and then it slowly declines over the last part of this history now what we're going to add to this graph is the um the record of area change so as the area is pulling apart 
our geologist colleague can estimate how much, how rapidly the area is changing for each of these time intervals. So we're not looking at area per se, we're looking at the rate of area change. If we're looking at area per se, the curve would look like this, what my cursor is doing, it would just keep increasing. Yeah. It would go like that. So this, and so now we can look at these two curves. And when we first saw these, these two curves together, we were all so surprised. We thought, my goodness, look at that. The mammal diversity seems to be changing in synchrony with the rate of area change, not with area itself. And so what this is suggesting to us is it's this disturbance, it's this fracturing of the landscape that is stimulating mammal diversity. And what we're now trying to figure out is, is how much of that is due to new species um, moving into the area through geographic range shifts or and how much of it is due to new species forming. Now, one more thing I should point out is this gray, whoops, this gray column in the middle here. This represents a period of, of global warming, the last major global warming period before today. And at this point, the globally, the, the earth warmed by several degrees centigrade. So, you know, even as sort of at the high end of the projections that we're facing now, but it happened much more slowly. So the interesting puzzle for us then, as, mam as people studying the mammal record is, is we see this peak in mammal diversity coinciding with the breakup and the expansion of the basin and range, which is a phenomenon restricted to North, Western North America. But now we also see this global signal of temperature increase, which occurred in Western North America, but occurred also in the oceans. It occurred in many parts of all over the world. And so what we're trying to unravel in with, uh, in, and we can talk about the, how, we, how we approach this after shortly, we're trying to unravel how much of the mammal diversity might be a response to climate warming and how much might be to the, the breakup of the mountain range in this area. But we've been very intrigued by this pattern. And then finally, I wanna point out that this graph is showing us the, the way in which the composition of the mammal faunas changed over time. And although there's, there, this is not meant to be an eye test, <laughs> <laughs> but I mainly want to, each of these colored, tiny colored stripes is basically number of species in different mammal families. So a, a number of the, these ones at the bottom in these, um, these sort of pale green to blue colors, whoops, are rodents. And then we're looking here at these, at the ungulates and then at the carnivores at the top. And so what we do know, if we look at this in detail, is that in addition to the number of species changing during this period in um, right around um, 17 to 14 million years ago, when, this, when we had global warming, we also see a very big change in faunal composition. So um, th that is one of the reasons that we think that there was probably both species, new species formation occurring as well as geographic rain shifts occurring. So let me just summarize and then we'll, um, we'll end my presentation and have okay. a conversation. Uh, what we do know is that in the, um, the whoops, sorry, in, in this area that the changes in mammal diversity are tracking the rate of area change in change in area and elevation based on these, geo these geological models. We do know that this middle, what we call this middle Miocene peak in mammal and rodent diversity corresponds to an interval of very rapid area expansion, an increase in low elevation habitats, 
very high relief, topographic relief, sorry, and global warming. So our, our challenge then is to try to figure out how those different factors might have impacted mammal diversity. And this peak of diversity included, although I didn't present the data, we have been able to determine this peak includes new species immigrating into the area from, from elsewhere, as well as originations, new species originating within the region. And also what we do know from studying our fossil record of rodents is that over, over the, from about the, this period of 17 million years ago to the present day, that rodents become an increasing proportion of the mammal fauna of the great of the basin and range as the area and the number of mountain ranges increased and it, one of the distinctive aspects of this area today is that rodents comprise a very high fraction of the mammal diversity and that seems to be true in many topographically complex regions so now i'll end with um, another scene from the basin and range so now that you've seen this bit of geologic history that I've summarized, you can look at the modern landscape and you now know something about how it formed. And yeah. thank you so much. Yeah. That is absolutely, I feel like I, I need to applaud. Because <laughs> that, was, that was absolutely fascinating. So I've, um, my mom's family is actually from San Francisco area in Colorado. So I've kind of been to the California area and we've driven up and down and we've actually driven across the states. And I can, I remember driving through some of these um, some of that landscape and, you know, looking out at the mountains and the hills, you know, and I, you know, I would think, you know, how did these form, especially right. when you're driving across the states. That's one thing that I found um, a lot of Europeans, unless they've been to America, um, they don't quite, it's kind of hard to fathom is just how yeah. vast and different all these different areas and how you can just drive across the you know the lower 48 states and just go through so many different true. environments and, and one, it, yes and one of the nice things about having a geology background is you're never bored driving across the country because there's always something to think about I bet. <laughs> <laughs> oh i bet and it's just you know it it's interesting to kind of hear about this um in such a vast and varying area um, especially like you know if we compare it to what um, a lot of our members will be familiar with is Ireland um, yeah. it's, it's so, so much smaller of a scale um, and it tends to be yeah fairly kind of um, I wouldn't say like it's the same across the island you still right. get some some different areas but you can kind of ex you kind of can expect what you're going to find when you that's when true you, go around. And, you know it, it's very similar to parts of uh, say the northern midwest or even parts of southern canada where you do have low mountain ranges but because they're they're not high enough to have very strong environmental gradients and so it what it means on ireland and and probably very similar in michigan is that you have the pretty much the same mammal species everywhere at least if yeah. the what I mean, it's with the exception that, you know, now humans have modified the environment, so they're excluded from in a lot of places. But if we could go back, you know, 10,000 or 20,000 years, you'd probably find roughly the same species everywhere. And that's true of many areas that don't have complex topography. You see geographic ranges extending over enormous areas because they're basically kind of homogeneous habitats everywhere. And the mammals that can live in one place can just as easily live in the other. Yeah, which which makes sense when you have kind of the same environment uh, across the area and you don't have, um, I mean, 
we have a couple of mountain ranges, quote unquote, <laughs> also, oh, um, in, in Ireland. At least we we call them mountain ranges, but um, you know, you go up and you look at them, you're like, these are kind of just big hills, <laughs> and you know, those are those would be fairly easy to to cross or for a species to kind of cross yeah. back and forth, yeah. whereas. Yeah some of the mountains that you would you would see in the states could be massive barriers that's right exactly exactly you're you've hit on just the right things one thing i will mention is you know i here i'm talking about an area long before we had hominids or hominins but the what's interesting is that the east african rift system where we at least much of the human fossil record is located has very similar properties. I mean, it's an area that has been expanding through the movement of tectonic plates over the time period of human evolution. So there are a number of folks working there on the sort of the history of the human fossil record who are also have very similar questions to the ones that I'm working on in Western North America for the very same reasons. Yeah, you know, that kind of, um, you know, as you're talking about how the environment could possibly be a could hinder or could help species diversification and all of that you know it kind of reminds me um of some things that we would talk about in archaeology because granted we're talking about people um and sometimes in linguistics as well when we're talking about different groups of people changing or you might have one parent group that then splits off and becomes a bunch of different some child right. groups that are still distantly related but because they've been separated by distance or they're isolated by the environment they end up changing so much and it's not something i i had initially thought would apply to to animals or to mammals really uh, but now that you know you're talking about it and i'm thinking about it, i'm like well of course why wouldn't it <laughs> it could well you know it's interesting you say that because uh if you look at uh human cultures and um, both whether you're looking at them genetically or just in terms of cultural habits and i think linguistic diversity goes along with this you see very high diversity of both um, in topographically complex regions. I mean, if I think of the area in the foothills of the Himalayas where I was doing field work in Pakistan and, and nearby Afghanistan, you know, there are many, many different languages there. And some, you know, you can go over a mountain range that's, you know, so physically you haven't gone very far in map distance, but you can be in a completely different world culturally. Yeah. And, and even genetically, because some folks are, are much more of, say, South Asian background. Others actually represent um, North Asian or even West Asian influence. Um, and so you can see people with blue eyes and red hair in, um, you know, in small valleys in certain regions in um, Northwestern Pakistan and Afghanistan, as the, some even reflecting the influence of the Alexander the Great and his his uh, people that that spent you know that came as far east as roughly where I do where I, my field area is and was in in Pakistan, and their legacy is not only in the statues and the the um, the monuments that were created there, but also in some of the the cultural expression of the people. So I think those same influences are working on human cultures as well. Yeah, so it, it's interesting just to see kind of the same thing reflected in mammal diversity and something yeah. that's been playing out over millions of years. Right. And and it's just, it's interesting just to see how all of this is connected and these parallels that are happening between animals and humans and cultures and languages and all of that. So it's just, it, it's really, really cool to see. Great. 
good. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed that. Yeah. Can, can you think of any particular questions that your, um, your club would be interested in that I, that I may not have covered adequately? Um, well, I guess I just, uh, so like I said, I just have kind of some general questions that sure. I just kind of jotted down after seeing uh, like what you've been working on. Um, it's just kind of a way to, to give me something to kind of latch on to. Um, but I guess one thing that I think might interest our members um, is just the fact that, you know, so in America, they have so many different species. And in Ireland, we have a lot fewer. Um, again, as we were talking about, Ireland is, is much smaller and it's not nearly as complex in terms of environments. Um, but we've also seen quite a few species go extinct over the past thousands of years. Yes. Um, now, what, it, what are all kind of the factors that go into species extinction? Oh, great question. And very important question now because we're seeing very high rates of extinction across the world. Um, well, if we're pre, in a pre-human world, um, then the factors that cause extinction tend to be uh, I mean, where we see high rates of extinction in the fossil record is, are, are periods usually where we see strong environmental changes. And, by, and that, that doesn't mean that the factors are entirely physical. I mean, because the, for example, changes in the landscape or in climate <clears throat> will ultimately have an effect on the vegetation, which is typically the resource that many, at least that mammals are relying on directly or indirectly. So there's, um, it's a usually a complex interaction between the physical and the biological changes, but we do see, and then depending on how rapid those changes are, if they're very rapid, they may cause, the extinction may follow because they're too rapid for species to adapt or even to move to shift their geographic ranges quickly enough to follow the, their preferred habitats. And that same, that process is one of the things we're worried about today, where the rate of temperature warming now, and, and also with changes in precipitation, are occurring at a much faster rate than we see generally in the fossil record. And one of our big concerns is that species won't be able to keep up. Even if their preferred habitat still exists on Earth, it may be far, far from where they live now. And so that's given rise to the idea of assisted migration, even. So um, I think the factors, that, but in other words, the factors that, though that caused extinction in the past was are largely environmental change. The factors adding to that for today, though, we have the main human factor is what I will call targeted exploitation. And by that, I mean, you know, it can be just outright hunting. It can be killing animals for without necessarily, you know, consuming them. Um, and, and it may be intentional and it may be unintentional. So for example, in North America, and I imagine this, I know this happened in Ireland as well, you know, wolves were extirpated over much of their former range because they weren't eat, eaten particularly, they were simply killed because they were considered a dangerous predator, usually dangerous to livestock more than to the humans. And so um, a lot of animals have disappeared because uh, they're targeted either for food or because um, humans don't want that competition. And then in addition, there are animals that are succumbing to disease, often inadvertent, but for example, there are now, um, for example, particularly with all the movement back and forth across the, the world to, uh, to islands in particular, there are forms of say avian malaria that have caused the decimation of bird species on islands in the Pacific. 
and uh, nobody intentionally introduces avian malaria, but by bringing uh, ships that have barrels of standing water with mosquitoes in them that carry malaria, you know, that happens. So there are all sorts of both unintended and intended consequences that are, that are playing out today. Yeah, no, that, that definitely makes a lot of sense because, you know, um, a lot and a lot of that is stuff that, you know, we've been hearing a lot, especially, like you said, recently. Um, but it's just, it's always interesting to kind of hear about the different factors that go into it because especially if, like, if you look at um, lists of species that used to used to live, like if you look at Ice Age animals. Yes. Um, and there's so many different kinds, like there's so many different kinds of um, ancient e elephants. And, oh, right. You know, now we're down to like three or four species. Three, three species. Three That's species. Right. Yeah. yeah, and you raise a good point because one of the more recent ex episodes of extinction uh, that scientists are still puzzling about is that what is called the the megafaunal extinction. Mega meaning large, so that includes a number of things like mammoths and mastodons, of which there were a number of species of each, and then other very large animals that co co coexisted at the same time. This happened in Irish elk, for example. Yeah. Um, you know, wonderful, amazing animal whose statues, I mean, it's not statues, skeletons, I was so impressed to see in your Natural History Museum in Dublin. Um, and um, that's a, an a classic example. So the, the question there is often, you know, were they driven to extinction by human activity? And in some cases, there's evidence seems to be yes. In other cases, it's ambiguous because at the same time period that these animals were, that humans were hunting them often intensively, there was also very rapid climate change. This was when the ice, the ice was melting, the world was warming very rapidly, vegetation zones were shifting rapidly, seasonality was changing from year to year and decade to decade. All of that is a huge disturbance to ecosystems. So it's very possible that these, the animals that disappeared, disappeared because all, so much was happening all at once. But the human exploitation seems to have been a factor in quite a number of them. Yeah, you know, like you said, the, the wolf suffered quite a bit in North America, and the, the last wolf was shot in Ireland, I think, in like 1786. Um, and they were, they were hunted mostly because, you know, a lot of farmers relied on sheep or, or right. cattle raising, and the wolves were a threat to that, which is something similar in the States. Yeah. Um, and I know that human exploitation um, or, you know, hunt, overhunting is a factor that may have contributed to the, the horse going extinct in the Americas. Um, versus, um, at least that's this, you know, I'm talking like I know what I'm talking about, but, you know, that's one of the reasons that I've heard for at least, you know, that particular species. Um, whereas why the Americas don't have horses until the Spanish brought them back. But right. Europe did. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, a lot. What one, what one has to look for, and now one starts getting into the same aspects of assemblages that archaeologists are looking at. One has to look at the evidence of how the animals occur in the fossil assemblage, whether what the breakage patterns are like, what the damage patterns are like on the bones, and then try to identify any. Um, aspects of the skeleton that show unique influence by humans of something that could not plausibly be caused by any other process. And so that's the kind of, now we're getting, you know, right yeah. into your domain. <laughs> and that's something that um, I've actually spent, done quite a bit of work on that kind of 
documentation, but for much older fossil assemblages, not really working with archaeological materials. Yeah, it's in, it, you know, it's kind of, it's, I can see how it could be frustrating trying to get to the bottom of this, and there's so many different factors that go into it, but it is also interesting just to kind of try to imagine what was going on at the time, and it kind of makes you feel a bit bad for some of these species, where they just had no chance if you had the environment changing, humans coming in and just hunting you, and your food is disappearing, and then you go, no wonder why they went extinct. <laughs> well, and you're pretty much describing what's happening now. I mean, yeah. one thing that the fossil record shows us is that um, species come and go on a very, on a kind of uh, a very slow and staggered, in a very slow and staggered manner. So, you know, every million years or so, a few species appear, a few species disappear, and overall the diversity stays roughly constant. Um, however, we do know that there have been a few episodes where many species disappeared in a short interval of geologic time, and that's what we call mass extinctions. And what we're, the pattern we're seeing now is very much like a mass extinction. So for me, that's very sobering. Um, I mean, I started, became a scientist because I was interested in biodiversity, and it's been, um, it's been um, a big challenge uh, to grapple with the fact that humans are having such an impact on the planet today that we're essentially causing another mass extinction. So I think one of the important aspects of looking at the past and studying any aspect of nature is trying to make more people aware of the value of nature, our tremendous dependence on nature for every aspect of our existence, including our mental well-being, and then realizing that if we don't change our ways, we're basically undermining our own future existence. So that's a message that I try to weave into um, many of my classes and um, many of my papers. Yeah, it's something that we, we definitely need to take seriously because um, you know, it is a major threat and we are going to be in some deep trouble if we don't get a handle on it. So um, what would be the effects of a mass extinction on our modern world because like you know we've seen mass extinctions happen in the past like the dinosaurs is kind of the big big one everybody knows about but you know if if we were to see a, a, a major mass extinction today you know what would happen uh what we what we're seeing already is the loss of what we call the top carnivores the top um, predators in many ecosystems this is causing a big change in ecosystem processes some of which maybe to our advantage, some of which are definitely not to our advantage. And so we're, what we're seeing is, and what, we're, what that leads to is a loss of the ecological processes that support human well-being, including primary productivity, whether it's in farmland or in, in um, non-farm ecosystems. We're seeing a loss of predator control of pests. So we're seeing, for example, more diseases, whether they're microbial, or insect-borne diseases, we're seeing those slowly increase and spread across the planet, partly because we're losing our pest control agents, whether in the form of birds or bats or other, other uh, vertebrates or even other insects themselves. Uh, we're seeing the mixing, the combination of species that haven't been together in the past. And sometimes we find some species in a new environment is able to take advantage of that very rapidly. And so we see what are, the, that's when you have what's called an invasive species, which can take over. So for example, in the Great Lakes region, we're getting these little mussels that come from the Black Sea. They arrived in ballast water. 
on big ships that came into the Great Lakes. And they have pretty much displaced all the local mussels. And they are, um, not only are they kind of carpeting the bottom of the Great Lakes in terms of their growth, they're also, um, and I think this, I actually find this a little amusing because sort of biting people where it hurts. They're also clogging up all sorts of drain pipes. And so they're causing a huge amount of uh, difficulty to um, cities and their drainage networks, but they're also um, having huge impacts on the, on the Great Lakes ecosystem. So those are just a few of the examples. Now, um, we, we, we can't fully anticipate what, the end, what will happen as a result of all these extinctions. We do know, however, that it will take thousands, if not millions of years for recovery uh, to the levels of diversity that we started with, you know, 10,000 or 20,000 years ago. So it will be a major impact on, that will be last on Earth perhaps, you know, as long as our species lasts or longer. Uh, well, that is, that is definitely some uh, sobering thoughts. Sobering um, thoughts. Yeah, but, you know, again, something that needs to be taken seriously and needs to be, right. you know, made, a, made aware. Right. Yeah, you know, because, um, you know, I've heard, heard of some, some examples of kind of what you're saying, like in, uh, Yellowstone before they tried reintroducing the wolves they had issues with like the the deer being overpopulated and just eating everything to the ground um, and I know in the UK they have issues with I think it's the I think it's the gray squirrel has uh -huh. been introduced into the UK and it's di displacing the native red squirrel and so they have um, they you know there I keep especially if you like you go up into Northern Ireland um, you'll see signs everywhere saying, you know, report if you've seen a gray squirrel, which is, wow, <laughs> which is a little amusing, um, to just see it. It's like, you know, have you seen this criminal? <laughs> it's a gray squirrel, <laughs> but you know, it, it's, it, it's very, very serious because they have such a big impact on the environment that they've been put into. And because they've, they've been adapted for a completely different environment yeah. that they can just completely take over. And it's, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I was pleased to see a little article in The Guardian just a week or two ago sh um, showing that beavers have now been reintroduced to a couple of rivers in England. And I don't know if that's ha also happened in Ireland, but that's very interesting because they're, they're a huge rodent, actually. And yeah. they, but they're what we call ecosystem engineers in the sense that they, by building their dams and their houses, their houses of big sticks, um, they are essentially changing the local environment, usually in a way that promotes the well-being of many other species, aquatic species. They also tend to moderate the flow of a river because the dams just slow the water movement a little bit. So they're really good for flood control. So oh, there are all yeah. sorts of good benefits from reintroducing beavers into an ecosystem. Yeah, no, that is, I actually hadn't heard that, but that is really, really good to hear. So, I don't know. I think beavers are cool. <laughs> so it's great to hear that they're back. And yeah, and so um, kind of just talking about beavers reminded me. So, you know, your, your main focus of your project is on the rodents, um, mm -hmm. which is just really interesting because um, kind of when I think of rodents, I think of mice, <laughs> mice and rats and kind of about it that's kind of what you immediately think of sure. um or you know 
squirrels on occasion, um, or if the pigeons are being particularly annoying, <laughs> they getting they get called rodents as well, oh, um, which is probably a bit insulting to the poor rodents. Um, but it's interesting to hear that they have such a diverse range of species, and they're such a good indicator right. for you know what you're looking at. That's right. They're very good indicators of habitat diversity, and so um, and they're actually quite interesting animals. Um, if one study, you know, if one starts to look at all the species diversity around the world, and um, it's yeah, I realize you know because of the the tremendous success of the what we call the house mouse and the the, the various rat species that have learned how to live, you know, in human with close association with humans, we tend to sort of latch onto those as being what all rodents are, but they're actually a tiny bit of rodent diversity and they only come from one <clears throat> family and the, the, what we call the murity, the, the, the mouse family, but there are you know, many families of rodents and they have many, and even within the murity, which has over a thousand species, some of them are very, very large and fluffy, live in trees, have long bushy tails. There's an amazing amount of, of variety among, in that group and they too, one of the reasons there's so many species is because their center of diversity is in Southeast Asia where there's very high topographic complexity. So even they are an important part of our story. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's cool to hear that because, you know, at least from an archeological perspective, when we talk about animals, we tend to focus on the ones that are very closely related to humans. So like horses, cows, sheep and goats, dogs, those are right. kind of the, the main ones. Sure. Maybe some reindeer, depending on if where you're looking. Um, we really only talk about rodents, particularly rats, if we're talking about the Black Death. Oh yeah. Um, you know, so it's, it, it's interesting to hear about a kind of a different side of rodents and how much that they can teach us about the environment. And, right. you know, even, even if we're talking about, you know, millions of years before any kind of human appeared, <clears throat> excuse me, it's interesting to hear about their, their place in it and how the world was working before humans showed up because, right. you know, we're living in a product of what's been going on for millions and millions of years. That's right. That's right. Yeah, oh, that is just, it, it's really, really cool. Um, so you also, so you said you worked a bit in Pakistan as well, because the, the, um, the samples there, like the, fo the fossils that you can find are well-preserved there. Um, and you mentioned it had something to do with where, kind of where it was located in relation to the Himalayans. Right, that's right. Yes, because of the Himalayas are such an enormous mountain range, both in height and in extent, they, as they erode, the sediments that are shed off the, from the mountains end up in the low areas at the foot of the mountains. And the, because of the collision of, the, of the, what we call the Indian tectonic plate with the Asian tectonic plate, right in that same area, there's a continual geological depression that forms right at that junction. And that is a place where these sediments have accumulated for now millions of years. So we have, we have maybe 5,000 meters of sediments. So, you know, if you can imagine, that's a very big pile. And now, since they've been accumulating since at roughly 20 million years, over 20 million years, now because of continued um, movement of these tectonic plates, some of those sediments have now been uplifted out of that trough. 
and are now exposed at the surface for us to study. And so we're able to study this millions of years of sediments and there are lots of fossils preserved in them. And so it's, it's a, an absolutely fantastic place to work. And I worked there with a number of other colleagues who had many different interests, including some in the human fossil record that came along later but also the, um, it turns out we have some very interesting hominoid primates from that record, including a species of ape called Shivapithecus that is thought to be closely related to the orangutan. So, and then of course I was, as a paleoecologist, I was very interested in the whole sweep of mammal diversity and how it changed over time as those environments changed over time with the, um, through this history. Oh, that is so cool. I, you know, I love hearing about you being able to find these well-preserved fossils. Um, I think particularly because it's so hard to find organic remains here in Ireland. It mm -hmm. takes some very specific situations for anything organic to remain because our, our soil is just so acidic. It just kind of destroys anything that's not stone. Um, like we found a couple of bog bodies yes. in, in the various yeah. bogs, which are super cool to go and see if you yes. go up to the National Museum of Archaeology in Dublin. And I've seen I, them, yes. <laughs> I, thought, I made a special trip to see them and I was very impressed at how well preserved they were. Oh, it's fantastic because you can see details like their nails and the hair and, and I always, and, yeah, yeah. I always make sure I go up and I see them anytime I'm in Dublin. Um, but, the, you know, the, that's very rare to get and it's just because they had been deposited in a bog and that condition managed to preserve them. But anywhere else, it's, it's very, very difficult. So we have to kind of um, use a lot of conjecture just to kind of get an idea of anything that was going on relating to humans or animals. So it's always great to hear when you have a nice, well-preserved array of fossils that you can look at. <laughs> it makes me just a little bit jealous to hear about, but oh, that must've been fascinating to see. It was. Well, fortunately, you know, there's still a lot of fossils to be found yeah. everywhere. So um, <laughs> even in Ireland, I would imagine. Yeah, I imagine there's still a few bogs to explore. I think so. I think so. We I, unfortunately, we generally find the bog bodies when someone goes in with a peat cutting machine. Yeah. <laughs> that's how they yeah. get dug up. And that, you um, know, interesting that you say that because that's how some of the mammoths and mastodons in Michigan have been discovered. They're also in low spots. And it's usually when farmers are, you know, going in there with some kind of earth moving equipment, either to lay what we call a drain tile or something like that. And then they suddenly find bone or tusk. And then they stop and think, oh, oh my goodness, am I ever going to get my job done? But <laughs> many of them also call our museum and then some, my colleague who studies them, the mammoths and mastodons, will go out and take a look. Well, that, that's good to hear. I know that's kind of the, um, the same reaction a lot of uh, construction companies have, both in Ireland and the UK, um, whenever they're, they're going in to go build something and they dig, you know, they dig a little hole and suddenly there's a skeleton there and they're like, uh, <laughs> now we got to call the archaeologists. Right. Those pesky archaeologists, yeah. right? <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of the sentiment <laughs> that we get. Oh gosh. Um, so actually another question I kind of had about, you know, kind of what affects biodiversity and extinction or um, the formation of species is um, 
the advent of agriculture. So I know we oh. talked a little bit about how some extinctionist species could possibly do, at least in part, to humans um, overhunting them. Mm -hmm. um, but what about, you know, how does agriculture affect that? Although that may not necessarily affect um, mammals per se, aside from the fact that their environment or their home is getting destroyed to be cleared, um, but I'd say have some effect on uh, plant diversity as well. Well, you've actually raised a really important question, and it's interesting because it's one that I became very interested in about 20 years ago. So I've actually done, I have a sideline of research about agriculture and its impact on, and, and the reason I got interested in it is because of um, its impact on biodiversity. Now, in the really early agriculture of, of uh, human agriculture, say 10,000 years ago or so, you know, those are clearing relatively small areas. The main thing we're seeing there is the effect of the early farmers on the domestication of species. And that's a really fascinating process. So it's clearly a co-evolutionary relationship. And I say co because it's not just the farmers, you know, choosing which plant or animal individuals are going to breed and grow and prosper. It's also that those plants and animals are having an impact on the humans themselves, either in their digestive systems or their life histories or where they're living or how they're organizing themselves. So it's a very two-way interaction. Um, what's happening today is, is really fascinating and um, it brings us back to the topic of mass extinction. And if you look at all the, the, the factors, the modern factors that affect the endangered species around the world, and this is mostly, I'm now talking about primarily about continental regions, although there are parallels in, in the marine systems as well. The main factor is always habitat loss. And the main reason for habitat loss is usually agriculture. So, you know, if you sort of look at, step back and look at the big picture, um, our agricultural system today is the main factor behind the mass extinction that's underway. And so, um, I, along with various other colleagues, different ones than the, with whom I'm studying the fossil record, have been kind of analyzing the situation um, in a number of ways. And if one looks, digs into the data further, and here we're talking largely about the last hundred years of agriculture, during which time we've had what we call industrial agriculture, which is you know, where you have a lot of mechanized equipment, you grow enormous monocultures, fertilize them with synthetic fertilizers, you use synthetic biocides to manage pests. And all of that is done on a very large scale in the developed world, but also more and more in the developing world. That's having an enormous impact, as you pointed out, on the, plant, the plants that were once native in the region. And of course, all the animals that live with them. So for example, in the Amazon region, you know, almost all that deforestation is caused by, is done on the basis of now either growing monocultures or raising cattle. And even the monocultures themselves are largely growing food for livestock. So, um, you know, if you look at the details um, of, of our agricultural system today, what we're seeing is a pretty stark reality that most people don't want to know. And that is that our, our heavy um, uh, culturally, uh, our cultural um, affiliation eating livestock products, whether it's milk products or meat, is um, cause is the responsible for much of the land of the agricultural land area in the world today, and that is again behind the mass extinction. 
So we are either going to have to change our eating habits drastically or find different ways of causing animals to subsist um, or um, just re reconcile ourselves to the fact that our eating habits are driving many species to extinction. And a lot of that happening indirectly just because of the a vast amount of land clearing that is going to, to feed animals. And it doesn't matter whether the animals are in confinement or in on pasture because even the confined animals need lots and lots of food and they create lots and lots of waste. So if anything, the confinement animal um, operations are causing are even more of an environmental problem than those on pasture. Yeah. So that's an, you know, agriculture is definitely a big, a big, um, a big factor that we need to change, you know, and, and I mean, I actually feel fairly, uh, I feel that we have some fairly positive alternatives. So um, I, I think that's one reason I think it's really important to look at all that whole situation very closely and starkly um, so that one can be motivated to go in a more sustainable direction. Yeah, well, again, it's a, you know, it's an interesting kind of aspect to, to think about. And again, it kind of goes back to just how interconnected everything is um, a lot more than people kind of tend to think. Um, but it's one thing that I've kind of thought about in the past, you know, especially like I've heard the story about um, the bald eagles in America, you know, had had some trouble for a while because there was a pesticide that was infecting them, or there's all sorts of insects that get harmed because of pesticides yeah. that harm the actual pest as well as the beneficial insects. Yeah. And then of course the, the, de the deforestation that is happening in, you know, in the Amazon, which is just absolutely tragic. Right. Um, not that anything else is not tragic, but you know, it's just, it's just kind of one thing on top of another. And then actually more recently, which I just heard about um, the other day was the, the, the dairy, the dairy whatever. <laughs> I cannot seem to get that word correctly. So I've never oh, heard of it yeah. before. Oh, the Sorry? derecho. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the derecho. derecho. I, just, I hadn't heard that word applied to the, the these big winds. Is that what you're talking yeah. about? Yeah, oh, that I, had happened in yeah. Iowa, I think. Okay. Yes. It was, and it just, it destroyed like over 40% of their corn and soybean crops. And yes. there was a couple articles that I was reading how that was going to affect so much, not only just, you know, people eating straight like corn on the cob, but also animal food, including like dog food, as well as livestock right. food, anything that has high fructose corn well, syrup. Yeah. And you're, you know, actually... <laughs> almost none of that is corn on the cob it's not none of it almost none of it is directly edible in that way by humans because it's not sweet corn it's feed corn and so you know the way we would eat it as is as you pointed out high fructose corn syrup maybe cornmeal or you know corn byproducts like cornstarch i mean if you look at a supermarket corn is in something like ha almost half the products in a supermarket but not in a way that we would ever recognize so corn gets, and, and that's where a lot of these, what we call these industrial uses of corn occur. But most of it is going for livestock feed. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and then it's just, um, you know, it's interesting, then kind of related back to what you said, uh, a lot of farmers using the monoculture in their agriculture. So, you know, when people think of Ireland, they usually think of the Great Famine. 
uh, in, in quick succession. And, you know, at least one reason why it was so devastating is because people were so entirely reliant on the potato. And, you know, if you're reliant on a single crop, and if that crop fails or something happens to it, uh, then you're in, you're in some trouble there. That's right. And that's a big concern, I mean, within, within um, people, for people who think about food and agriculture, because the number of uh, varieties and the number of kinds of plants and the, no the number of varieties of plants have been diminishing over the last hundred years. And there is concern that reliance on fewer and fewer varieties is leaving us vulnerable to exactly the same kind of problem that occurred in the Irish potato famine. And that was a reliance on a single variety of potato. I mean, there are many, there are hundreds of kinds of potatoes and not all of them are resistant. Not all of them are susceptible to that particular fungus. And um, so eventually it was finding <clears throat> a variant that was not susceptible, that was resistant to that fungus was that what restored you know, the ability of people to grow potatoes once again in Ireland and other places. Yeah, you know, it kind of goes back to the whole um, idea of, you know, if we have mass, mass extinction happening um, and we end up losing a lot of these valuable species that, you know, affect the environment or have their own particular role in the ecosystem that is probably not very evident. You know, it's kind of a running joke where if you see some strange, usually somewhat annoying um, organism, you kind of ask, oh, what even is the point of this creature? Um, but there generally is a point to them. And if they were to suddenly disappear, we would feel the effects very quickly. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, on that, uh, Wonderfully happy note. <laughs> I think I think we'll go ahead and wrap up. Um, I could continue talking for so much longer because um, it's just some some very interesting topics and very um, topical topics, really. Even though we're talking about stuff that happened thousands and millions of years ago, it's still very relevant to what's going on today in our own modern lives. Um, well, so, I'm glad you think so. I, I, I do as well. And that's one of the reasons that I always find studying the past really interesting because, I mean, not only is it just a fascinating puzzle, which would be perhaps reason enough to study it, but it does have a lot of lessons for us for today. Yeah, uh, you know, and that's, you know, that's at least one thing that I, I always kind of try to impress on people if I'm, you know, talking to them about a subject that I, especially if it's one that I feel really passionate about, um, it's that we might be talking about old dead things that are long gone or have left very little behind, but there's always something to be learned from them that we can apply today. You know, whether it be looking at similar situations in the past to see if we can avoid uh, the same mistakes mm -hmm. or perhaps to prepare ourselves for whatever may come in the future, or even just to kind of learn more about ourselves as a species or as a society. Right. Right. Well, and also to understand that we, whether we're looking at our anatomy or our culture or our kind of ecological situation today, we are living with many legacies of the past, the shallow past as well as the deep past. Yeah. And that's, it's worth knowing a lot more about that. Yeah. So that we better understand what's coming in the future too. Exactly. You know, that's, that's one reason why I'm, especially this year when we're having to do all of our events virtually, 
um, because of social distancing and lockdown and all of that. Um, but it's why I'm trying to find, you know, as many different interesting topics that we wouldn't normally be able to to have access to either because, you know, the person, there's a lot of really cool um, archaeologists and historians and all sorts of other people in a variety of countries that we would love to have here in person. Um, but it's usually not feasible to to get them over because we just we just can't afford it. Um, so it's great to be able to to talk to people such as yourself virtually and to to still hear about these different topics and hear about you know all these interest these really really cool things. So thank you so much for you know for agreeing to do this and for talking. You're most welcome. And that's maybe one of the long term you know positive things will come out of this pandemic is that we will be a little bit more spontaneous now about talking to people from the other side of the world. Yeah, I think so. And I think we'll be a little bit more open to uh, doing some of these, some of these virtual things. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. So, well, thank you again. Thanks. Thank um, you for inviting me, Bridget. And I hope that your society enjoys what we've been talking about. I think they will. I think they will. It's something very different and um, very interesting. So I think they'll enjoy it. Okay, great. Uh, and hopefully, maybe one day we can host you I would personally in Galway. <laughs> I hope so, too. Very good. Okay, well, lovely to see you. And um, take care, all of you. Half Travel, Will Travel is produced by the NUIG Archaeology Society. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listened. If you'd like to stay updated on our activities, you can join our Facebook group, follow us on Instagram, or sign up for email updates on our blog. The links for those can be found in the show notes. If you're a student of NUIG, make sure to join the Society via your space. The Society would like to thank Professor Badgley for taking the time to chat with us. We hope you enjoyed, and we'll catch you in the next episode.